Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about sports, business, entrepreneurship, athletics, all kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. What's going on? What are we, uh, what are we talking about today? We got an interesting one. We've had uh, Olympians on before. Um, we've never had someone carry a flag at the Olympics, which we will have today. Um, and it's amazing sometimes how the people kind of find us or we kind of connect with people that become really interesting stories on the podcast. And I think we have one of those today. Julia Marino is an Olympian. Welcome, Julia. Hi, everybody. Thank you guys so much for having me. She carried the flag. She lives in the United States. Uh, she's adopted originally from Paraguay. And I read in one of the stories, not that we're going to go there all the time, but talked about kind of like being the Jamaican bobsled team for Paraguay because she became the first Winter Olympian for Paraguay? Yes, I became the first Winter Olympian for Paraguay, and I definitely get the Jamaican bobsled thing thrown at me quite a bit. (laughs) And competed uh, in Sochi, could have competed in Korea. We'll talk a little bit about why she didn't and the injuries that she's had, Uh, but has now gotten to the point as a professional athlete, as a... Uh, a, a skier, which we didn't mention, what sport, um, slope skiing, um, got to the Olympics and has had an interesting time looking at what's next, but also what she learned from the Olympic experience, which is something we never really get into with, with an active Olympian, Tom. I guess, Joe, being that some people follow winter sports, maybe we should clarify this Julie Marino thing yes, right. Uh, right up front, yep. just so people yep. aren't confused. So you, you go yep. for it. So it's a, a, an interesting story. Uh, Mark Beal, who's the, one of the principals at Taylor, uh, Taylor Strategy, Taylor in, in New York City, uh, used to be, a long, 100 years ago, was my graduate assistant at Fordham. Um, and Mark sends me an email, or Julie actually sent me an email one day, said, I met with Mark Beal. He told me about this newsletter that you do, uh, and we'd like to talk to you about the business of what you're doing and what my story is and how you know, I'm trying to expose my story to more people and figure out what's next. So I looked it up, and Julia Marino's name comes up. And I see Olympic skier, and she's from the East Coast. So what are the odds that there could be two? So so Tom and I went back and forth, and we were talking about it. And ironically, there is the other Julia Marino, who is on the U.S. Olympic team. Who's a snowboarder. Who's a snowboarder, right, who is from Connecticut. Yes, who went from to the, the town that I live in. Right, with right. This, and your kids went to the same high school. Right. So um, it just kind of as a one-off, I happened to look it up, not thinking that there could be another one. And lo and behold, our Julia Marino popped up, right. who has if not a better, an interesting story and kind of a unique path uh, through the Olympics, certainly different from being on the U.S. Olympic team uh, that we're going to get into. So that's kind of how so we, we got here. So we should just say to everybody, anybody who, who Googles Julia after this podcast, make sure you click on the right link. Right. And, all, and also she's going to give out all her social handles yeah. and talk yeah. about that as well. So well, she'll pick up more Julia. followers. Great well, to have you. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. So, so let's have you talk a few minutes about um, the fact that you were born in Paraguay, adopted, which is a, a big passion of yours came to the United States, uh, went to the University of Colorado, uh, and then found the Olympic moment and actually participated, did well in the Olympics, and kind of your story. So, so walk us through Julia getting to the United States, growing up here, and how you got involved. Yeah, so I was born in the northern part of Paraguay in Bahia Negra, which is actually pretty close to Brazil. It's considered one of the hottest places on earth, which is ironic that skiing became my sport. I was adopted when I was eight months old and grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts in Winchester. I started skiing at the age of two at Loon Mountain, which is up in at New the Hampshire. Age of two. Yeah, that was <laughs> okay. the first time on the skis. Wow. Um, and I don't remember obviously that exact moment, but I remember being three or four and really enjoying skiing. And 
um, my uncle actually had a house up there. So I was getting a lot of days in, you know, per the year and was taking lessons on just how to traditionally ski. That kind of transitioned into, I'd say, elementary school that um, I told my parents that I really wanted to take skiing seriously, and they purchased a condo up in New Hampshire so I could join the seasonal program and practice every single weekend. And then middle school, I would say, is when my career was in a, going in a direction where I knew I had a lot of potential with the sport. And at that age, you kind of have to make a decision what discipline you want to focus on. And slopestyle skiing at that point... Um, not even being in the Olympics, it wasn't even a World Cup event. It was very kind of edgy and not the traditional thing, like the traditional route, I guess you would say, with going with racing. So I found it so cool to go off these jumps and hit these rails. and Just um, like what Tom and I do every weekend. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Julie, um, when was it introduced, by the way, as kind of a, a somewhat official sport with the X Games and all the so other So it was in the X Games, like, when I was still in the like the progressive right. kind of learning stage, for sure. But the X Games at that point was on the East Coast, actually, up in Vermont. It wasn't in Aspen. It wasn't kind of this household event, no, right. you know, known. Right. So I would say for me, um, official, like, training and having a coach started when I was about uh, 10 or 11. And that was kind of a, you know, a year where I competed in a lot of local events on the East Coast, never had been out West at that point to ski for me, I really have started to believe in my progression as an athlete in the world of slopestyle skiing around the age of 10 or 11. I had a coach. I skied with actually a group of boys who really pushed me. There was not another girl in the group, and I mm. give my brother so much credit to my success. What's because his name? My brother, Mark, okay. um, and he was a great, great skier. He's, he's a better skier than I ever will be, so talented. And he taught me everything that I need to know about hitting rails and getting you know bigger spins off jumps and being in this group of, you know, boys that were always telling me to go, 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 try it, you can do it, really allowed me to gain a few tricks that no other girls at the time were doing. So competing on, like, the local national circuit, I was winning most of those events, and I knew the next season following this kind of intro year that um, my goal would be to go to nationals out in North Star in California. And that year I trained really hard for that event, and when I got out there... Um, the stacked of like girls in this competition were just one a lot older, so much more talented, and it was my first kind of like big scene competition. And I fell my first run. I think it was pure nerves. And we, my coach took me like aside to a private. Um, there was a half pipe. I was competing at half pipe at this time, um, and he wanted me to try this new trick. And somehow I landed it. I didn't even, you know, this trick wasn't even in my mind. It wasn't on the horizon at this time. And we landed it there. And then I didn't know what he really wanted to do with the trick at this point. But your, What's your coach's name? Uh, Morgan Alford. He was okay. my first coach. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a really special moment that I will always remember and was like kind of the spearhead of my career. And um, we get to the top of the half pipe and we're you know, getting ready to do my second and final run, and it wasn't combined score, which was awesome. So I really did have a fresh opportunity. And I think maybe because I messed up on my first run and I didn't feel the pressure of, you know, landing mm -hmm. it, I didn't have anything, you know, that was as good as these other girls um, until having this trick um, that I, um, you know, kind of strapped my skis on, looked down the half pipe, entered this kind of, I remember it so vividly, just like complete focus, and he said, you're going to do the um, this alley-oop in your, your run. And I was like, Morgan, like, I can't do it. Like, I just did it once, you know, in the practice half pipe. 
and he's like, you're going to do it. So, you know, going through the run on, like, the first three hits are awesome, like, huge amplitude, great spins, and then the fourth, I believe it was the fourth hit, I did the alley-oop, and I stuck it, and I was like, just hold on, you know, get through the end of the run, and um, I get down to the end of the half pipe, and you know, I didn't even see a score. I was just so ecstatic about learning this. And he's skiing down the side of it. And um, he's like basically in tears. And he's like, you just won the whole competition. So um, I won my first nationals. I think I was 13 at this time. So that was really the big moment where um, sponsors kind of opened up. I got my first ski deal with Solomon, who I've been loyal to through my entire career. Um, and yeah, from there, things just really started to take off. And after that, I was in regular school in Winchester, Massachusetts. And, um, I realized that I wanted to be able to train every single day and I transitioned to Holderness school. And that's where I started competing at world cup, uh, junior Olympics. I got second there and that's when things just kind of really flew off. Were you competing for the U.S. or for Paraguay? I was competing for the U.S. at this time and um, the group of girls you know some of them are still some of my greatest friends and competitors and uh, we had a really special little team there was about five of us Mm -hmm. on the east coast that were just you know Mm -hmm. really dominating the scene on the east side and then the like on the west coast international competitions and it was funny um, in Sochi there is actually a picture of us where um there's three of us that all trained on the East Coast, like since we were like 10 together and all made it to the Olympics. So. Julia, would you mind describing the sport? There's probably plenty of uninitiated people, and maybe even Joe and myself. Yep, I mean, I know sure. generally yeah. what it's about, but yeah. describe what, what, what it, how it works and how it evolved. So, slopestyle skiing is an impression event. I like to often compare it to gymnastics, being that you're like scored on overall. It's you're judged. Not, it's yeah, it's a judge. To be clear. It's, yeah. yeah, there's right. no time involved. You can take actually as long as you want to drop into your run. Um, every single event is different, which is how, kind of how I fell in love with the sport. It's not the same. You know, sometimes the rails are first, sometimes the jumps are first. And what you have to do is when you show up to these competitions, you get, you know, a day or two to practice and you have to formulate a run based on whatever features are in the course. So obviously certain courses tailored to certain, you know, athletes. Some like the rails first, some like the jump. Sometimes it goes jump, jump, rail, rail, jump, jump. Um, usually I would say there's between five and seven features in a course and you're judged on overall impression and I would say like some of the major elements are like amplitude, difficulty of trick, and um, overall impression. So you want to be clean and a, a run that looks clean that's not as difficult as maybe a more challenging run will always outscore. Interesting. Hmm. So that is that the official word they use, impression? I'd say, yeah, it's yeah. an impression. Isn't that, I've never yeah. heard it referred to that way. Yeah. But it, so it is interesting. So you have to basically decide each event you go to or in the past right? kind of how far to push it to have a chance to compete, Exactly. Right? And, it, I mean, kind of the order that you drop into the event is it's a randomized bib order. Right. And if it's on World Cup, it's based on points. And when you get to go later in the order, you have such right. an advantage seeing what, what everybody to do, to do right. yeah, to get into um, – you know, a top 10 situation so you can make a final the next day. So all that in mind, and now that we've got kind of the backstory, tell us a little bit about how you became a Paraguayan Olympian versus a U.S. Olympian. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. And you carried the flag. Yeah, no, that was an amazing experience. But 
At the end of my 2013 season, um, the way that the U.S. operates on the World Cup Tour, which are like essentially Olympic points to get mm-hmm. into those qualifiers, you are up against... I'm telling you, there's 20 girls who compete under the U.S. who are that talented, who have the ability to compete at this level. So they kind of shuffle through each event, and they choose, you know, who's going to which event based on how you're performing, how practice is going, you know, if you're doing something new in training. And at the end of the 2013 season, I was invited last minute, like I'd say like three or four days before I left um to the World Cup Superfinals in Spain, and I, at this point, was just head over heels that I even got invited to this event, had no expectations, and uh, really thought that it would be a great way to end the season going into the U.S. Olympic qualifiers, because my goal was to be invited to those at this point, because the Paraguay thing hadn't even crossed my mind. So I went out to Sierra Nevada, Spain, and it was a kind of a similar experience to what happened in North Star, and I ended up getting my first World Cup podium and second at the event, and... After that moment, I knew I was in a great standing points-wise and selection-wise to these qualification mm-hmm. events in the upcoming season, and I got back to the United States, talked to my agents, had a bit of time away from sport. It was the end of the season. Uh, the end of April through May is kind of a break for all skiers before getting into summer training, and we were just kind of going over, you know, these are the qualifiers. Um, how are you going to approach press regarding where are you from? It's, I mean, it's one of the first questions in most traditional Olympic interviews. Where are you born? And um, we had to figure out a response with, I was born in South America. Why aren't you representing where you're from? Mm. The Olympics is this country-affiliated event, and I think it's a, you know, a really unique event in the sense that it's focused around uh, where you're from, Not compa- there's no financial gain, and... Um, we started doing a little bit of research, and we found out that in Paraguay they had never competed ever in a Winter Olympics, and that really stuck out to me, and I started kind of going through my contacts that I had in Paraguay. My godmother is down there, and I said, do you know anybody involved in the Olympic world here? And she had a few contacts, so I wrote um, wrote to them on email just kind of a little bit about myself and wanted to see if they were interested in kind of doing this together, and they were really excited when I'm saying there are no winter sports in the country, there's not even an ice rink. You know, mm-hmm. they, they just are complete. It's completely foreign to them. So um, I took some time and I've really thought about um, how this would affect kind of the rest of my career because this is a permanent decision when you switch countries at this level. You can't go back. You can't go back. You have to go to like court, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. um, very complicated. So I knew that this was a big life choice and I had to kind of weigh out how this would affect everything. Um, my, co- you know, my relationship with my coaches, the relationship with the U.S. team, like there is, mm-hmm. you know, I've been working with them, you know, competing with them for so long. So it was a thing that I really had to take some time to think through and it all kind of hit home when I thought about um, just my life in general and how fortunate I was to, you know, be in the situation that I even am, you know, growing up in the United States, no matter being, a, you know, a pretty talented athlete at this point. And I had wanted to reconnect with where I was from for a while, and my family was actually expecting to do a trip back to Paraguay. Um, about a few years before this decision, like two or three years, but my father actually passed away suddenly, so we didn't do the trip. So 
I looked at this as kind of being the first way to reconnect with that, like where I was from and to meet with the Olympic Committee to go on live television and say we're bringing winter sports to the country is wow. just something that, you know, I'll have forever. And um, I'm so happy I could do that for them. And I also am proud that it's not as so much as like a Jamaican bobsled story. Like I was competitive mm-hmm. and yeah. I had yeah. talent. So it was a really, really memorable experience for me. So before we get off that and, and talk a little bit about the Olympic experience and then what happened going forward, so you're literally carrying the flag, and you're the only one. There's like, yeah. you turn around and there's, who's, who's standing behind you, do you remember? I think it Whatever was the like next the next team. Yeah, maybe like Poland or Portugal. Yeah, Poland, yeah. Portugal. yeah, yeah. Some, some big team, and there was a lot yeah. of big teams next to me in line. And mm. that moment, I will always remember walking in, and I was like, you know, you can't mess this up. You can't drop the flag. <laughs> there's nobody around you to help. And um, they play the national anthem, and you're, you're, if you ever got to the podium, you'd be there by yourself. Yeah, too, so. exactly. Mm-hmm. But I'm also curious, Julie, about your experience of dealing with the PR. It sounds like you yeah. became a bit of a celebrity. Yeah, I mean, I, down I, there, <laughs> yeah, down there, I'm definitely viewed a lot differently than I am Do you speak in the United States. It's something that I can read well if it's mm. given to me in front, but a big goal of mine for 2019 is I'm going to start taking Spanish classes. I'd love to become fluent and then, mm. you know, use my platform and my voice down there to inspire the youth and hopefully start a nonprofit and bring winter sports to a country wow. that has no winter sports. Um, and, yeah, no, that... that was it intimidating to suddenly be thrust into that, the limelight the way you were? Um, I don't know if it was intimidating... It was just, it was kind of, it was more of a shock and everything was happening so quickly. I was meeting with all these different sponsors down there, you know, meetings with the Olympic Committee, the um, National Sports Federation, interview after interview after interview. You know, I'm at my hotel and they leak like where I'm staying and the press is at my hotel asking to do interviews, just wildly different from anything that would happen in the United States. But those media tours were where I really felt like I made the right decision because of the excitement I felt from not only the committees, but just from the general people and getting to not only do the traditional media side of things, but getting to go to schools and to talking to young kids that were just so excited and showing video of snow and mm-hmm. mountains and skiing, like they've never seen any of that. So that was really exciting for me. So you um, you competed, did well, uh, continue to compete, and then um, as I think we all know, life throws you some curves. Yeah, um, so let's definitely. Talk. Yeah, the Olympics. Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got, I, I yeah. We're going to get to that. That's mutually interesting. Yeah. Um, so you went alone. You obviously had some support help around you, I gather. Down, down to, to Paraguay? No, no, I'm sorry, to, to uh, Sochi. Oh, yeah. So this is Olympic experience. Yes, yes, so, yes. So you I make have... it to the big state, the yeah. biggest of, of the big stages for your sport. You're alone there. Were, were you embraced by competitors and friends from other countries yeah. especially the US for yeah, example yeah I, def- I had you know I had a good amount of friends and we've all been competing on right. that tour so everybody was really excited and I did some interviews where they actually asked to reach out to some of my previous teammates and just to see some of those like kind of imprints like really left an impression on me yeah. like I knew that the coaches on um, the U.S. team were really happy for me, and they thought that this was a great decision, and they had so many other talented girls anyways that it was it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, no, I, I really felt, like, welcomed, and I, I know I was doing something really different, and I kind of feel like my whole career was based on that, but I did have a really challenging time, actually, with the competition at the Olympics because... In October of 2013, I was at 
you know, preseason training camp out in Sospe in Switzerland. And at this point, I hadn't even been, one, released from the U.S. team. Two, I had to write this huge proposal asking that my points be transferred to the new country or I would mm. start back at zero and have to get it. Not that it wasn't achievable, just every single thing would have to go right. And we were confident if that did happen because my points at a certain point were actually getting the U.S. team their fourth Olympic spot in the game. So it was a lot of going back and forth with them. My coach, Christopher Haslock, did a great job kind of keeping, like, the communication between me and the U.S. team positive and, like, you know, making them believe that they will get this other quota spot through Mm -hmm. the um, Olympic qualifiers. And... Yeah, I had the great training camp. It was like probably the best training camp of my life. I was feeling so positive coming off that podium at the World Cup, was getting ready for the Dew Tour, and then four Olympic qualifiers that um, started, I think, the second week of December and kind of went through the second week of January. That's the final cutoff with the points list. And the last day of the camp, it's the second run, and it's a little bit icy, and <laughs> I wish I paid a little bit more attention to that, and I'm off the second jump, and I see the landing just way in the rear view mirror, and I'm like, oh my god, like, I'm gonna land on this next jump, and I'm like, save your knees, like, we, like we're told how to fall, and I crumbled, and I instantly knew I broke my collarbone. <sighs> um, Ten minutes later, I'm in a helicopter on my way to the hospital because we were training up on the glacier and because it's so high up there's only t-bars and being on a t-bar you need to have your arm to be able to hold on then to get on two trams which takes about 35 40 minutes to get to the village the hospital's another hour and a half away so i'm kind of in this surreal moment where i'm flying through the alps in a helicopter it's the most aesthetically beautiful thing i've ever seen i'm crying because i know something is seriously wrong with my collarbone and I don't know if I'm released, because if I was not released from the U.S. team, I would have missed every qualifier because of healing, and my Olympic run was over. So, I, you know, I found out, uh, yeah, so this was just I'm glad crazy. you asked the question, Tom. Yeah, this was a crazy, crazy moment, yeah. and I get to the hospital, and this is also really ironic, but... Um, you know, we're six hours ahead, so I'm calling my mom. What city are you in? I was point? in um, Switzerland, like yeah. in a small village. Okay, so yeah. not, not a major city. Yeah, not okay. a major city. And we're at the hospital, and, you know, I'm talking to my physio at home, my surgeons that I've had other surgeries with. Like, you know, am I in a place that I should have the surgery done? They want to put in plates right away and then send oh, me man. back home. And so I call my mom, and she answers. And I suddenly remember that she's taking my brother to a scheduled surgery for tearing his Achilles tendon this morning in Geneva, New York. I'm in Geneva, Switzerland. She's having an absolute field day with what's going on. And we decided uh, in Switzerland to do the surgery. Um, Two hours later, like out of the surgery, feel immensely better. The plate really just like holds all the bones and they put 14 screws in and so that must have been a bad of, break because yeah, collarbone doesn't a, usually does involve it, yeah, yeah, surgery. It was right. a double break and a dislocation of the AC joint. So oh they, they really pushed for the surgery. And, at, you know, at this moment, everything is just a complete whirlwind. So first things first was just to, you know, feel a bit normal from after having all the anesthesia and get back to the United States as soon as possible, begin physio, get in the gym, keep maintain my, you know, fitness with everything else. So... Got back to the States, I'd say like probably a week later, I found out that I was released from the U.S. team, my points would transfer, and I was already qualified for the Olympics. Wow. For how many months away? Um, I'd say like two and a half months. Wow. Yeah, so 
this the rehab how I you know treated all my rehabs and had such success in the past with not you know having any re tears was taking a longer approach to recovery and that just wasn't an option here I would say three and a half four weeks later I was back on skis whether I liked it or not was trying to get air awareness and comfortable back on skis and you know felt something felt very off with my balance and it's my dominant side that I spin to um it really was painful so I went to the due tour was just completely overwhelmed did pulled out of the event because it just it didn't matter from a point standpoint so we just kind of worked on doing events and getting me more comfortable and trying to get some of my stock tricks back but I had a huge hesitation um again at this point I was healthy for a very long time before I hadn't suffered a big injury and this was um a really big shock and a hard thing going into the games I remember my practice the week of the games like every day it was a fall and it was just balance like I just didn't have like my normal sense of air awareness and I hit my hip so bad the first day that I couldn't even I could barely walk I was limping and so I took a day off of practice I have so much attention on me from the media because of being the first you know NBC BBC every single news outlet wanted to do video features and you want the exposure but I also need this time to kind of figure out like you know how are we going to do this and I remember having this conversation with my coach just basically in tears like I don't even want to be here like I you know I got second at the last world cup I competed in and now I can't even do my run because of physical limitations and I didn't do any official big announcement with my injury because I didn't want that to be the focus of all this media either that oh she has an injured shoulder like it's you know what's how you know I don't want to talk about that all the time as I'm preparing for the biggest event of my life so the morning of the competition I actually like calmed down the nerves felt better and um, do you have a prep routine, by the way? Yeah, I for, mean, for I your big events, like when you know yeah, it really to counts. Music. I kind of go off to the side. What do you like to listen to? Um, rap, like house music. I definitely have a few favorite songs that I usually. Yeah, it wasn't Yanni, so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. Sense, so. yeah, and um, I just knew mentally I wasn't completely with the program, and that was okay. And I just had to kind of look at that. I made it this far. You know, I did this for Paraguay. I'm giving my best, like. You know, some athletes would choose not to compete with kind of coming off with an injury like that. But um, I'm so happy I did, especially with how going into Pyeongchang went. But um, the competition is something that I kind of, it ends up being almost like every other competition. It's just in this environment that is so drastically different. And I've never been in a competition where I haven't landed a run. So this was the first of that. And even with landing not two runs, um, ended up 17th and was proud of that performance and um there was a ton of challenges with weather the course was bigger than x games it was just i remember showing up to this and being like oh my god like holy shit like these are bigger jumps than x games these are like 110 foot jumps and um the girl who was ranked first in the world who was expected to win our event came in last place so it was just this completely Mm not normal event and yeah that was kind of Sochi in a nutshell and then I wanted to immediately get out of there and they really pushed for me to stay for the closing ceremonies and I just emotionally otherwise nobody's ever carried the flag yeah yeah so I actually did leave which 
Mm. Maybe now I do regret a little bit, but I, you know, I was an emotional wreck. I physically didn't feel. I was gonna awesome. say, I think, yeah, I think it was that time was under, to, for anybody who knew, knew what was going go on home. with you. That's yeah. understandable. <laughs> so before we move off that, was there anybody from the Paraguay Olympic Committee actually with you? Yeah, there was one c- delegate that <laughs> was, was there. Yeah, um, so he came out and watched my events, and he was at the opening ceremonies. Uh, but the president wasn't able to make the mm-hmm. um, event or the ceremony. So, so we get to Pyeongchang, and you're getting ready to go back again. Yeah, so and, I took and, a... And life kind of life, throws yeah, hits, curve. Yeah, it's it again. So I took a year off after Sochi to finish up school at the University of Colorado Boulder for what'd the first you, time you in my in? life. I majored in psychology and anthropology. Mm-hmm. And see, so it was great because I would go to school from May to December and then take off for the winter, but it was going to be my first year, like a full calendar year of school, just be with some normal friends that aren't Olympians, kind of get out of the scene, take a mental break from sport, and... At that point, I was honestly considering retiring, and I just felt that I had a little bit more in me, but I didn't know if it was necessarily in slope-style skiing. So I wanted to race, which is like a completely different sphere of skiing than what I was involved in, and I just really believed in myself, so I started competing in racing events, and all of a sudden was competing on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, and Again, all my friends were so supportive, and I couldn't believe the... It just felt very natural doing all of this, and my coaches, um, you know, put me with a great team of uh, coaches that allowed me to enter this world and kind of have a crash course, because racing, it's just repetition, 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 Mm -hmm. so I didn't have all that mileage that most of those athletes do. Most racers start at four or five in our training gates, and I decided to try this at 23, (laughs) and so... Learning a whole new sport. And there are multiple scene. racing events. Yeah, so did multiple. you pick one? Yeah, I was focusing on giant slalom, okay. which I really liked. I wanted to race speed, but the problem with speed was, because I have, I have no fear of going off the jump straight. I you know I was doing flips and spins, so to me it was like, come on, like let's go as fast as we can. This is, this is awesome. But there's such risk when you fall, and they were like, when you enter this sport, you suffer really big injuries, so we just think, from a safety standpoint, we'd rather have you race GS. So was loving training like I was just I wasn't as happy like when I returned back to slope style after Sochi and I just I couldn't imagine doing this day in and day out if I didn't feel passionate about it and I felt so wildly passionate about racing and was enjoying learning and just being on that tour and getting to know those athletes and I you know this probably sounds crazy to say but I think I was in the wrong sport for you know my you know teenage into young 20s and I had such a great time doing all this, and I was healthy again from up until after Sochi until January before Pyeongchang, and, um, well, actually, let's rewind that. Um, Moving into the Olympic, like the season before the Olympic year, I was training out in Austria on the glacier, and I just had bad luck with the glacier training in October. Don't go to Alaska. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, I took this really like pretty pathetic fall, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like my arm like really hurts. Like I don't understand. So I'm on the T bar back up to you know go take another run. I thought everything was fine. We're gonna keep training. Took some Advil. Continued training the rest of the day, and got back to um, my apartment. It's like, wow, my arm really hurts and it's throwing off a lot of heat. My coaches are like, let's take the weekend off and like, let's just do some like physical therapy and get you in a good headspace. You have events next week. So the weekend's going on. I'm not sleeping very well. And we're at the airport 
about to go to Norway for a qualification event, and I just completely freak out, and I'm like, I need to go to Massachusetts. I need to see my doctor right now. Book a flight, and back in the States, um, get in to see the shoulder guy, and they're like, yeah, we're, we're going to need to do an MRI. Like, there's a lot of instability in here. So I'm in the MRI. With, and I, with your... Shoulder, yeah, with elbow? my bad shoulder, oh. yeah, with my bad shoulder through here. So, uh, related to the... Yeah, the, the same the side collarbone. as the collarbone. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I didn't know if I just kind of tweaked everything okay. and the plates moved around. you mentioned your arm. Yeah, yeah, arm yeah. Really it was the whole, it was the whole the arm was, like, really yeah. inflamed and not normal. So, I'm in the MRI and the assistant comes in and is like, you know, we really need you to, like, hold still. And I'm like, wow, like, I actually can't <laughs> hold still in this position that they're saying, like, something must be wrong. And I knew something was wrong because like we really want to make sure we get a clear image of what's going on in here so i'm like you know tearing up in the mri come out of the room see the scans and i like instantly see like a big line and i'm like oh no like i something is torn and they're like so you have a slap tear of your bicep tendon and you've torn your labrum you can still ski but you're putting yourself at like immense risk going forward because again the balance is kind of all off um, racing doesn't involve as much upper body. Like, I'm Correct. not rotating or swinging right. things. I'm just kind of holding poles. So um, my team came together, and we decided. I was like, you know, I've trained this hard for three years now. I'm, You know, I'm going to do it. Like, we'll take two weeks off and rehab and, you know, be in all the kind of machines to get the mobility back. And I felt good going back into um, qualifications. I'd say the first time I got on skis was a little iffy and I knew something was, you know, still not right. So we took a few days. I was in Italy for a few qualifiers. You know, qualifiers are going well. Like, I'm feeling more and more confident, getting my confidence back. And, you know, we're just kind of chasing events for me to just get mileage in this sport right. if I'm going to try to compete on And by the, the way, was it stage. clear? Just um, I, I, This was kind of implicit, but was it clear by this point that you were competitive enough with this new event? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. and I would get, you know, coaches would come up to me after events and would be like, this is like your first season competing at this level, and right. this, you know, this is incredible. Yeah, like, that's I wish a really we could take, we wish we could story. take like yeah. years with you and do this. And um, I took one fall in a qualification event in Austria, and I just kind of clipped the gate, and my my ski didn't release, and I this so I like kind of fall off to the side, limping a little bit. I'm like, wow, like my knee like really hurts. Like I'm gonna go inside, and so. Go inside, take off my boot. I'm like, I don't think it's any tendons because I know, like, the ACL kind of feeling of letting go back to, like, my first big knee injury um, in high school. And I'm like, I'm going to take, you know, the next day off, and I'm going to go to physio, and we're going to see what's up. So physio out there says, um, you know, you dislocated your kneecap a bit. Like, let's, like, move it back into place, and, like, let's do some stretching, and, like, we'll get you back going. So we're doing this. I'm, like, sitting there, and I'm like, okay, like, yeah, that really hurt. Um... We didn't take any x-rays, which we, just because we, where we were, we're so remote. And um, they were like, okay, you, you should be okay in a few days. So we, I had one event that I then pulled out from. I was like, I'm still not ready. I could barely, like, put my shoe on. And I was like, something is just not right here. So we go up for this other competition in another part of Austria. And, I'm, you know, I'm saying to my coaches, uh, I really feel weird and, like, I'm not skiing correctly and, like, I'm not engaging my quality. And so we film it. We look at the video. And we're like, Jules, like, you look great. Like, come on. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, they really don't know, like, how I'm right. feeling. But, like, they're telling me I look fine. Like, let's just send it. Like, you know, this is the last week of qualifiers. Like, let's end on a good note. So I'm in the gate. Like, start the run. It's going well. 
And then all of a sudden, I just feel like I have no stability in my leg at all. And that, like, almost I'm skiing on one ski. And I just take this massive crash, fly about 40 feet down into a fence, seeing stars around my head. And I'm like, okay, like, this is it. Like, there is something seriously wrong. So they're like, (laughs) this is really crazy. So we get down and, like, I'm crying because I'm in pain. I'm like, I don't understand, like, what's going on with my leg. Like, now it really hurts. Um, Jules, we like really want you to. It's a double event. We really want you to do this oh event God. in the afternoon. Wow. I was like, guys, like, I'm so sorry, but I know something is seriously wrong, and I can't. I'm done. Like, okay. it's over. I need to go back to the United States and see my. Who was asking doctor. you to do that? By my way. coaches and like, I'm I'm so how like grateful that they like pushed me and like that we did it. And then you'll understand why they honestly feel so awful and will be forever apologetic because the dislocation like you are like approved to go back to sport but that actually wasn't what was wrong what is what we found out so I get back to New York and I'm just a mess like I'm in you know talks with deals with coke like everything is just you know out the door at this point you don't go you don't get any of what you've been working you know to obtain right and you're representing the country yeah and you know i feel like the weight of the world uh, you know they're all everybody's so excited they're the olympic committee so involved with every single thing that i do and so i go first to a doctor up here who so we knew we had to do repairs on the shoulder so that was always going to happen at some point so i knew i had one surgery scheduled so the first doctor tells me that Oh, you, they just, you you have a fractured femur. And I was like, okay, like, I'll take a fractured femur, like, no tendons, no surgery. They're like, you got to stay off it for a few weeks, like, you'll be fine. So I'm then, you know, meeting with my shoulder guy here to make a plan of how we're going to do the shoulder. And he calls me and he's like, Jules, like, I really don't mean to overstep, like, with the other doctor at, you know, up at HSS, but your ACL is completely gone. And I was like, I asked her, 10 times do I have an ACL like this is my biggest fear I was like you've got to be kidding me he was like you know come back in like I'll show you it so I go back the next day he had access all these to different... the MRI yeah he was yeah. kind of like seeing overseeing right. everything with my health at this point so I go in I see that there's no ACL and he was like when you say like, no ACL no ACL completely torn so my theory is I fractured it with clipping the gate we should have pulled out after the fracture the reason that the ACL went, I had no stability through the quad because where I fractured it actually goes right into the kneecap. I probably did have a slight kneecap right. dislocation, a little bit of fracture at the tip of the kneecap, and um, I was just in shock. I didn't, I was walking with a fractured femur. No, I had no external traditional symptoms, so nobody could tell me what was wrong, and I was probably the strongest I ever been in my entire career at this point, so everything else is kind of holding me together, and um yeah, so the plan from there was let's we, we can't do both surgeries at once because I was going to be on crutches and then in a sling. So let's start with the leg. That's the most, you know, that's the biggest thing that we need to focus on. So um, let's schedule a surgery like week after kind of the opening ceremony so you can just decompress, take some time away. Kind of like was a hermit for a few weeks, didn't talk yeah. to many people, turned my phone off. And um, two days before my surgery, I'm like, I'm just having such a hard time. Like, how? Like, how is this even possible? How am I walking into an ACL surgery? Like, the last time I did this, it was so much swelling. I was on crutches. I knew something wrong. Like, I don't really even believe something is wrong at this point. So I'm out um, down in West Village, and it's pouring down rain. And because I didn't have an ACL, I slipped. And at that point, I get like total, you know, swelling immediately, like traditional ACL symptoms. And I text my surgeon, and I'm like, I have so much swelling, like 
usually when you have an ACL surgery, they wait about a month to get all the swelling up because they can't operate. I was like, I don't know if you're going to be able to, to operate tomorrow like it's a balloon. He's like, come in, we'll get an MRI before your surgery. So at that point, the little fall, walking around, um, tore my meniscus too. So um, we had another new plan, got, you know, got everything organized, had the surgery that was at the end of February, and after that became the rehab process. And with this kind of rehab with bones and tendons, there has to be an immense amount of effort going into, like, relearning how to walk and... You know, getting you know, you lose kind of every single muscle being completely stationary and locked out at zero degrees. And I was in physio every single day, and living in the city is an absolute nightmare for dealing with an ACL surgery. So we would do physio in my apartment, and yeah, that's where the rehab began, and we've been doing that kind of ever since. So the and and what we want to talk about in the last kind of few minutes here is the the kind of epiphany that you get as you're watching the Olympics, realizing that. There's other things that you want to do now. Yeah, I mean, I think I've kind of always kept my feet in a bunch of different pools, and I think that's what allowed me as an athlete to be marketable because, yes, I know I was talented and had some really big results, but I wasn't the Lindsey Vaughn of the scene Mm -hmm. in the slope style or the racing world. But um, I tried to use experiences and qualities about myself to relate to other people, and I think that's how I grew a really organic following and going to school and a lot of skiers you know don't really go to traditional high schools or colleges and I you know I want to apply what I've learned there and then my experience as an athlete into a business setting and it's a really exciting time for me right now and I'm really looking forward to the future. So talk a little bit about your upcoming trip to Nepal, some of the charity things that you want to do, and some of the business things you want yeah, to do. Yeah, no, of course. Well, being adopted, I connected with After Sochi, the gift of adoption organization, and became kind of a face for them. And their focus is raising um, grants to families who want to adopt but can't afford the cost because especially international adoption is so expensive. So I've done a few events with them. They kind of operate by state chapters, so events in Colorado and then events now in New York. And I hope to help them kind of launch their Massachusetts chapter um, with my brother being adopted. And then my sister actually adopted two kids from Russia, so we're trying to work some stuff with them. And then a few months ago, this opportunity with the nonprofit Build On came along, and it just really seemed to fit what I was looking for from working in the charitable world. I wanted to do something hands-on and Education has given me every single opportunity, so I think that working with them is going to be huge. Uh, we're going to Nepal in March, and we're doing a trek mission to work on constructing a school. And besides the actual physical labor, there's a cultural section of the trip where we'll actually be able to teach um, some of the future students English. So I think that will just be so you know heartwarming and something I've never done and completely out of my comfort zone. So I'm really looking forward to that, and we're actually hosting... A benefit for the event in Soho in December. What's the date? On the, the 14th, date. if anybody wants to swing by, we have some great sponsors. It's an open bar. I have a live DJ kind Where of setup it? in Drive 495 in Soho. It's actually my training facility, and Don Saladino, the owner of that, has been so supportive with my charitable work and has donated us the space for free. And it's going to be a really fun night, and we're kind of it's kind of like a holiday benefit. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I had one more question about um, your skiing and, and, well, your skiing experience and kind of what you went through, because it's an amazing, it's an amazing yeah. story. And Joe, I think one thing that I was thinking about listening to Julia talk was uh, the sacrifice that 
high-level athletes, particularly in that mm-hmm. world, right. have to go yeah. through. Was that pretty common for for the the milieu that you were around? Was everybody dealing with these kinds of things? This seems yeah. like an extraordinary human I mean, challenge. Yeah, no, and I think actually mm-hmm. with, uh, that's a really great question and um, something that I do like to talk about because when you go from training in like a U.S. team environment when you have, you know, five to ten girls with you all the time, like, you know, you at least had friends, like, at the, like, becoming a team of one, I was with just the people who were coaching me, physio, doctor, like, that was it, and then you kind of have this high all day where everybody's telling you, you're the best, like, you're doing so well, like, run after run, like, let's keep going, and then you go back to your hotel room, and you have a minute to sit with yourself, and it's very lonely, and you're in these remote places, and all over Europe and Asia was the dominant World Cup tour for racing, so I really didn't have, like, you have friends, of course, but they're your competitors. Skiing is a very odd sport in the sense that all teams are training on the same courses day in and day out, but they're also your competitors. So, yeah, you grab dinner with people occasionally, but, you know, you do want that time to kind of regroup and focus. And this was the first year in four years that I've had Thanksgiving and we'll have Christmas at home. Like, that wasn't even an option, like, seeing my family then because of, you know, we had events either on Thanksgiving, a day after Christmas, and it didn't make sense to fly, you know, transatlantically um, to go home. So that's there was a lot of things that you give up and I think all Olympic athletes can relate to that and sacrifice is a huge part of being an Olympian. Yeah and, and so just as a follow-up mm-hmm. question so as you look at your future as it relates to some of the uh, social causes or charitable work that you have in mind mm-hmm. at least initially which lessons will you take away that will mean the most to you as, as, a, as a future business person or um, philanthropist. philanthropist or whatever you choose to be? Um, I think like the foundation of my career has been built on ambition and drive and I want to carry that into whatever workplace may be next for me. I know when I have a goal in mind that I will do whatever it takes to accomplish it and I think for me like you know my career is really just starting. This is a great backbone and I'm so happy the network I've made through it and the experiences I have and I hope to be able to use my voice and the platforms I've created to encourage others to you know Mm -hmm. try and to think outside of the box and to never give up because I feel like overall my story is constantly being you know knocked down and picking myself back up and I just want to apply that to all spheres of life yeah Um, so one other thing and you touched on network and building your own brand Uh, we've heard from a lot of athletes big and small people like um, Paul Rabel or everybody as big as Marcellus Wiley Steph Curry, yeah. uh, athletes talk about the ability to build your own brand now. Um, have you been able to take advantage of that with the network that you've had? Yeah. And how is how do, how do you do that? Well, for me, at first it was figuring out what spears besides being on snow connect to people in Paraguay and mm-hmm. just into the world in general. Losing a parent at a young age is something I instantly relate to with anybody. Being adopted, anybody who's adopted, we can have a really you know honest conversation about that injuries for girls in sports and making the decision to either you know continue going is something I've really tried to use my voice for ACL injuries are so common with just the way girls are developing Um, and you know becoming adults and competing at high level sports and I you know I connect with uh, anybody who was a student athlete I mean obviously I wasn't competing for CU or anything like that but just those kind of spears I've figured out how to use to connect with people and make what may seem so unobtainable or not achievable 
relatable. And I think that's where I was able to really take my brand in a different direction. And then I figured out like what worked and what didn't work on social with people in Paraguay. I mean, I would like love these pictures of skiing that I was posting, but that doesn't mean really anything to them. They aren't familiar with it. So I started doing a lot more posts in the gym and lifestyle and they like that really resonates with them. So just figuring out what works and didn't work took a little time. And you use Instagram and Twitter? Yeah, Instagram, Twitter. My Facebook is very popular in South America. So that's my largest following. But um, wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. So um, before we ask you how people can find you, Tommy, have any any one more kind of parting thought? Yeah, I guess um, right just as, as a way to crystallize, I mean, your, your whole story is very inspirational, I assume, to, to everybody listening. But could you crystallize uh, in, in the form of advice you'd give people that are starting out on a journey, either young people with their careers or athletes who are struggling or whatever? Yeah. I mean, you kinda, you've already given yeah, a absolutely. lot of really good insights about determination and tenacity and all that. Anything that's well done the build-up to that is going to not look so pretty, and there's going to be a lot of moments where you doubt and question yourself, but keep your goals in focus and always have a plan and write down when things aren't going wrong and reflect upon it. I'm a huge journaler, and I look back on some of my journals now, and it's so interesting to see how things formulate. Mm -hmm. And I love... I, I like the therapy of just writing, disconnecting, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that to me is really what pushed me actually. Um, I'm writing a book. So that's, of course. Um, yeah, so that's mm-hmm. what um, that kind of stems from. But honestly, to just stay in your own lane, don't let other people's opinions bring you down because when you are trying to achieve something that seems so out of reach to a lot of people that it's hard to relate and just to stay, just stay focused on your own goals and don't let other people's opinions boggle you down cool so julia ending advice yeah, it is and uh julia how can people find you on instagram i'm julia marino dot ski so julia and i had to go back and forth and figure that out the handles the battle, the <laughs> yeah ta- she got she got the good one i so we've talked on the phone once actually because her dad was asking me about advice with either her going to like boarding school or just like focusing right. just on skiing she's a little which bit is younger, younger. Right? she's yeah, a little bit right. younger but yeah um so, uh, you know, my agents and I always said it would be so funny to do, like, the Julia Marino's, like, some kind of video. So she I did a podcast. Yeah, or a podcast. Yeah, about, she did. about female yeah. athletics. Yeah, Name no, Julia. I'd love to. And she's so talented, and she did great at Pyeongchang, and I think she has such a successful future. And, you know, she's a big metal contender, so I think mm. in Beijing you're going to see really big things from her. Nice. Cool. So how do they find you? On Julia Instagram, juliamarino.ski. Twitter, Julia underscore Marino. And then I believe Facebook, it's, like, Facebook, and if you just search at um, Julia Marino underscore. And it's M A R. M A R I N O. Cool. All right. Wow. So, and then we will uh, we'll pump out the website. Uh, we'll put it on all our, our channels, obviously, for the event that you have coming up. Uh, but once again, Tom, talk about skiing and not knowing where we're going. We took some trips today that I don't think anybody could have predicted. That's <laughs> yeah. it's really an amazing yeah. story. So yeah. congratulations on all your success. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This is great. Oh, uh, no. And, and also, not just your success on the slopes, but your success as being a um, very determined person. Yeah. It's really thank inspirational you. to listen to you. Thank you so cool. much. Once again, this was the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the road.